COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information, bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not so new dimensions of this crisis. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that pre-existed the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. When a group of white property-owning men, otherwise known as our founding fathers, gathered in Philadelphia two and a half centuries ago to create a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, they couldn't have possibly imagined that my guests on this installment of Under the Black Light, Representative Barbara Lee, Representative Ayanna Presley, and State's Attorney Kim Fox, would one day be counted among the elected leaders of this nation. But despite these women's extraordinary successes, this isn't entirely a story of inevitable upward progression. The demand for democratic inclusion for black women has been like the pain of unrequited love. Black women have sacrificed, bled, and died to become enfranchised members of this republic. We have fought with our white sisters and with our black brothers in the overlapping fight for gender and racial equality and democratic participation. Yet the rewards of our devotion have been disappointing, to say the least. To echo the great Fannie Lou Hamer after she was told to wait, to wait, and to wait some more, we didn't come all this way for no two seats when all of us is tired. When Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez testified last week about being accosted by Representative Ted Yoho on the steps of the Capitol, when she testified about being called a gendered slur. She also revealed that in the moments after this harrowing encounter, she returned to Congress to cast her vote. I walked inside, she said, because my constituents send me here each and every day to fight for them. Like AOC, my guest tonight have bravely chosen to bring their full selves to the halls of political power, even when doing so means suffering the slings and arrows of misogyny. Each and every day, these women display grace in the midst of fire, calm under immense pressure and lucidity in the face of insanity, all the while making it look easy. But it's not lost on me that this takes practice, it takes dedication and it takes a toll. In this installment of Under the Black Light, my guests and I will examine the contours of activism and politics. We'll discuss how, as elected representatives, they've risen to meet the intersectional challenges posed by the twin pandemics of COVID 
and white supremacy. We'll discuss what they do, how they do what they do, and what some of the unknown and unappreciated costs of fighting the good fight as black women have been. First, we'll hear from state's attorney Kim Fox, who serves as the first African-American state's attorney for Cook County, Illinois, overseeing the second largest prosecutor's office in the nation. Since running on a platform of criminal justice reform in 2016, she's gained national attention as a reform-minded prosecutor who's not afraid to shake things up and do things a little differently. Then we'll hear from Ayanna Presley, U.S. Representative for Massachusetts 7th Congressional District and the first woman of color to be elected to Congress from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Prior to her election to the House of Representatives in 2019, she served on the Boston City Council, becoming the first woman of color elected to the council in its 100-year history. Finally, we'll hear from Barbara Lee, the U.S. Representative for California's 13th Congressional District. Now in her 12th Congressional term, Lee has served since 1998. She is the former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, and she's currently the only African-American woman on the Democratic leadership team, serving as co-chair of the Policy and Steering Committee. I began by asking state's attorney Kim Fox, who is part of a small network of progressive reform-minding prosecutors around the country, about the power of discretion, the discretion that state prosecutors wield, and what that discretion might mean for an outsider on the inside. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be on this panel um, in Cook County. 86% of the people who are in our criminal justice system are black and brown. Historically, there's been an overrepresentation of blacks in our jails and in our prisons here. And you factor that with a prosecutor, you know, there are 2,400 elected prosecutors in this country. Less than 1% of them are women of color, less than 1%. There are about 30 black women who do this job out of 2,400. So when you say, you know, wielding the power of the prosecutor and discretion and who gets to do that, uh, very few uh, black women get to do this work in an area that is overrepresented by black people. And so the power of the prosecutor, I don't think many people appreciate um, how much power that is. We have the power to charge. We have the power to not charge. We have the power to make recommendations on sentences and bail recommendations across the board. The, the prosecutorial discretion, which is, I think, the, the, the biggest source of our power, is something that has not been in the hands of people like me, not simply because I'm a Black woman, but also because I come from the projects of Chicago. Because if you look at the risk factors of people who end up in the justice system, particularly black girls and women, you know, many of them come from concentrated poverty, come from single parent households. Uh, 66% of them have been survivors of sexual abuse or assault. I am a survivor of sexual abuse and assault. Um, and many of them have battled issues related to homelessness or mental health. Uh, my mother suffered from bipolar. I was homeless in high school. So I had every risk factor that would lead me into the justice system just not as the top prosecutor. And so I think that is disconcerting for many when you have now shifted the power into the hands of those who've been impacted by policy, but who've never had the chance to shape it. 
So one of the things, you know, that I've done that has been to wield that has been to right some of the wrongs of the past before I got here. You know, Cook County was known as the false confession capital of the United States. We sent more people to prison for crimes that they didn't commit than anywhere else. And so we reinvigorated our conviction integrity unit. And in the last three and a half years, we vacated the wrongful conviction of over 100 men and women, 99% of them Black men and women. And so the power of the prosecutor to not just put people in jail, but also the power to let those out who shouldn't have been in there in the first place is one of those areas where I think I've seen some significant pushback because this is just not how things are traditionally done. Mm -hmm. And and I, I want to talk about that pushback in particular, the form that it takes when it's against you. But before I ask you that, I, I want to get a um, your mantra out on the table. So I have one that I say when it comes to the Say Her Name uh, campaign. I say you can't fix a problem that you can't see. You can't address a problem that you can't name. Yeah. You have a similar mantra in yeah. doing the work you do. So what's yours? My mantra is you can't fix what you can't measure. All right. You, you, how do you acknowledge and fix the harms that have been caused if you don't have a record of the harm? And so my office was the first prosecutor's office in the country to make every piece of felony case level data available to the public. Again, that power that we have of charging, not charging, the public has the right to see who am I charging? What am I charging them with? Am I charging African-Americans and whites in the same way or Latinos in the same way? And if I'm now noticing patterns that I'm not, or that we're treating victims of sexual assault and, and domestic violence who are Black women differently, because I can now measure that, we can start then asking the questions and fixing the policies to address that. And so I am a, a full believer in transparency, particularly in places that wield this much power, because I think we've gotten so much failed criminal justice policy based off of antidote, based off of you know emotion, and not with real concern about the collateral consequences and effects that it will have over generations. And you know, data is basically a theme that's gonna weave through our conversation, but I, I think some listeners might not really recognize how transformative your transparency is. And you know, to try to make a point of it, one of the cases that I teach in my civil rights class is McCleskey versus Kemp which is a death penalty case. And McCleskey was basically arguing what we all know, that there are racial disparities in who gets the death penalty. The Supreme Court basically said, well, you can't prove your particular case uh, because you don't have the data to prove it. But he didn't have the data to prove it because most prosecutors don't make the data available. So in this particular way, racial disparities get built onto discretionary decisions. So what, what happens when you're trying to fight against a discretionary decision when you don't have the data to show how the discretion is being exercised? That's exactly right. And it also goes back to the people who've been able to be in the positions of power to be to say and what they will say and argue without the data to substantiate it, you know, these are race neutral. The, this is colorblind. We don't I, I don't see race. I think you go anywhere in these institutions where someone will say, listen, I don't make the arrest. I just charge what comes to me. There's a, a kicking of the can about whose responsibility it is to own 
the structural racism that exists, that we inherited, but what can I do about it? And for me, it was, I did inherit a system that I knew fundamentally was built on racist principles. And so in order for me to change that, one, you have to call it out and it has to be seen. And we have to dis disabuse this notion um, that we are making decisions in a bubble just on facts that are presented to us in the moment. Who we decide to charge with marijuana possession, for example, if we all know that people smoke marijuana at the same rates, and yet in Chicago, Blacks were seven times more likely to be arrested and prosecuted for it, and everybody uses it at the same rate, that is not a race-neutral application of our prosecutorial policy. You need to now look at that. And now we have to start to figure out how do we address that so that we are balancing those scales, but you can't do it if you aren't able to see it, if you are not able to see it, you will just be able to say, I'm just dealing with what came to me. And so that's a common thread that spins from State's Attorney Fox to you, Representative Presley, bringing the outside in, bringing activists into positions of power, turning to Congress that you know, ha hasn't been the bastion of liberty. And when progressive uh, legislation is conceived, Congress has often acted as a recalcitrant institution to block meaningful efforts to dismantle racial inequality, white supremacy. And even now, as we speak, an anti-lynching bill is being held up in the Senate. So many people see American politics as inhospitable to progressive ideas. Congress is, is not the place where transformation can happen. So I'm wondering if you could take us to a moment like we did with State's Attorney Fox, where your voice, your advocacy, your concrete proposals reflected the possibilities of your unique perspective as an outsider within. Sure. First, again, I just want to say thank you for inviting me to this virtual uh, table. Uh, indeed, Black Lives Matter and Black Academia Matters and Black Data Matters and Black Research Matters and Black Thought Leadership Matters and Black Policymakers Matter. Um, these are my sisters in service. Uh, they have been uh, trusted confidants. Uh, they challenge me. They offer me counsel. And of course, they have been a source of strength and inspiration. So just thank you again for the invitation. Let me start at the beginning. I think the most important thing about me is often left out of my bio, and that is that I am my mother's child. And, you know, she shaped me in the most formidable of ways. Um, she was a tenants rights organizer, a community organizer, a community activist. Um, she did not read me uh, bedtime stories that were traditional. She um, made sure I knew that being black was beautiful, but that I was being born into a struggle and what was going to be required of me uh, to be in pursuit of that justice, uh, the full liberation and emancipation of black people. Even at the age of eight, I remember being uh, sitting on a telephone book at the beauty shop, getting my hair pressed and holding my ear. And um, I had a look of consternation on my face. And uh, the woman said, that child always has such a furrowed brow. And they said, what are you worried about? And I said, the world. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I thank God that my mother blessed me uh, with a uh, strong back and broad shoulders. And so the gravity of the responsibility that she bestowed upon me, I hope that in word and deed and in uh, legislation that I honor that. I also just want to say that before being elected to Congress, I served on the Boston City Council, as you alluded to, for eight years as the first woman of color, first black woman to serve in that institution. And that took only 100 years. 
in the bastion of progressive politics, you know, a, a city and a, a commonwealth that has been a leader in healthcare reform and marriage equality, but still woefully behind when it comes to parity around decision-making tables. And I ran for that seat on a platform of, I'm running to save our girls, girls that don't even know they need saving. And people said, go run a nonprofit, that saving our girls is not the work of government. But I knew that it was the work of government because I knew the government had failed our girls because it had failed me. But I also knew that because any organization dedicated to the safety, development, and wellness of our women and girls, I had volunteered for and served on the board. And I would give all these girls my phone number. And they would call me at all hours of the night. Miss Ayana, a family member is making me feel uncomfortable, is abusing me. I know that happened to you. Can I come stay with you? Miss Ayana, I just came out as queer to my parents. They kicked me out. Can I come stay with you? I think I'm pregnant. Can I come stay with you? And I just realized that no matter how hard I work to keep my home open and my arms and my heart, that I could not meet their needs. And it underscored to me, and again, this is not about my, am I my brother's keeper or my sister's keeper? This is not, you know, the oppression Olympics. We are both oppressed. We are both marginalized. It's not an or, it's an and. But what I knew is that when we had policy discussions about at and proven risk youth, the conversation was dominated by black and brown boys. Meanwhile, girls were growing up in the same conditions and we were completely ignoring them. We were being rendered invisible. And so I ran for the Boston City Council on this mandate to save our girls. And so I remember the first budget hearing and I asked every city department and agency that came before us um, in that, uh, that fiscal meeting, what about our girls? And they barely had monosyllabic responses. By my second term, they came with multicolored cross-tab binders because they knew that someone was going to ask the question. And that is the power of representation. So what Barbara, Kim, myself, and you are doing is we are honoring the long tradition of black women as the truth tellers, as the table shakers, as the disruptors. They'll call us disruptors instead of what we really are, are innovators. They'll save that for Silicon Valley. But we are being disruptive in the pursuit of progress to actualize true justice. And that is innovation. You know, that's what the progressive movement is all about. So when we're at the table, we shake the table. And we ask different questions, and that shifts the air. So when I was on the council, I began working on the, the push-out crisis, the criminalization of Black girls in our schools. And I want to shout out Dr. Monique Morris, my thought leader in that work, um, from the National Black Women's Justice Institute. And what we found is that in Boston, it didn't matter what school system you were in, that black girls were being disciplined, suspended, expelled at six times that of their white peers. And so then I took that to Washington. So now that I'm in Congress, we introduced an In Push Out Act bill because we know that black girls are over-policed. Our bodies, our hair, our skin, criminalized. We have more girls justice involved than ever before. We have more women incarcerated than ever before. And so also within that framework, I introduced, in addition to the End Push Out Act, I introduced the People's Justice Guarantee, a radical reimagining of our criminal legal system with an emphasis on decarceration and decriminalizing poverty, uh, homelessness, substance use. Let me just say this before I transition. Did you all read the story yesterday about the 15-year-old in Michigan who was sent to juvenile detention for not completing her online um, homework? 
right? So two Americas, two justice systems, a punitive carceral system, and this is why we introduced the In Push Out Act, because instead of investing in school police officers, we should be investing in restorative justice practices in trauma-informed learning communities where an educator is not going to ask you what's wrong with you. They're going to ask you what happened to you. We don't know why that young lady didn't do her homework. We don't know if both of her parents are essential workers. We don't know if she even has a hotspot. We don't know. So there's so much there that we realize that um, we, we, in some ways, were raised by the same mother uh, because I was also that girl who was worried about a lot of things. And um, the child of a mother who raised me always to think and have something to say about the world that I was inheriting. So, and, and the other thing, and I, I want to put the plug in for um, my uh, a colleague, uh, Dr. Monique Morris, we're doing an event tomorrow on what philanthropy needs to do um, to uh, ensure that women and girls receive a fair share of the resources that are now being made available um, because we have recognized that there's a lot of racial justice work to do. If we don't talk about these issues, those resources are going to continue to um, uh, reinforce a, a certain understanding that our girls are doing okay, um, our gender expansive youth are doing okay, uh, because the focus is pretty much exclusively uh, on our boys and men, who are are also not doing okay. Black Girls Matter was an initial report that Monique and I did together in Boston, where we found that, you know, the disparity actually between black girls and white girls, the disparity in suspension is greater than the disparity between boys. And nobody knows that because the data wasn't collected to ask that question. But Dr. Fincher, one more thing on that. My mantra is the people closest to the pain should be the closest to the power driving and informing the policymaking. We were partners with you in that work, and we did evidence-based focus groups with black girls. But I'm so tired. We have to center their voices in all things. But why do we have to weaponize our trauma in order to be seen and to be heard? When I ran for the Boston City Council on a, on a mandate to save our girls in my home community, Black folks were like, what about the boys? They're the ones dying on the streets. And I said, yes, and our girls are slowly dying. Yes, yes. And the frame, I know a lot of people kind of get surprised when I say this, but you know, I'm, I'm all about talking about the special uh, ways in which Black women and girls exist, but sometimes I feel like the Black girl magic frame normalizes the fact that they have to be magical to survive have to be magical for people to see them as valuable. Why do we have to be magical? Um, why can't we just be? And why can't our just being be important enough uh, for policymakers and for people in our community to see us as valuable uh, and see us as important? So with that, thank you so much, uh, Representative uh, Presley. I want to share a memory uh, before going to Representative Lee. And I, I don't know if, if you remember this, but uh, we were uh, together in a green room, that, that sort of backstage for a State of Black America event. And uh, we were one of a handful of women who had been invited to come and talk. It was right after you were the lone vote, the only person to um, cast a vote against the uh, war in Iraq. This was 2001. And I was fangirling a little bit, so I was afraid to approach. Uh, but you were sitting off to yourself in the green room, and in the middle of the room was what I'm sure they would define as 
black leadership, you know, sort of notable black male leaders, and they were being secured in this outer rim by the fruit of Islam. So, you know, they were standing there securing the, the leadership, right? I guess against the rest of us, I don't know. And here in this moment, in this green room, is the one person in Congress to say no to a war that was obviously ill-considered. The one person who refused to go along just to get along. The one person in that whole room who, in the words of J. Edgar Hoover, might have been seen as the most dangerous person in America. But the fruit of Islam was protecting these other folks. And you were just sitting there looking at your notes. I was like, what does this have to be like, right, to have the courage and the vision to actually exercise leadership, but not to come in a body that people are used to seeing as leadership. And it just, it made me wonder, what is it like to actually have that insight and that courage and to many times be lonely in the exercise of it? So I was wondering, what you could share with us about that moment uh, in, in your political history where you did something against the grain of everyone. Now everybody says you were right, but they weren't saying that at the time. So what was that like? Well, Kimberly, first of all, let me thank you for inviting me to be with you tonight and with my sisters. And let me just say, first of all, you know, um, I am so proud and happy that you coined and defined intersectionality. I always use that in our organizing principles when, whenever we have conferences, whenever we have dialogues about how to move forward. I always lift you up because that is such a, a visionary approach to living and to life and to winning. And so I just have to salute you and thank you again for that because you have participated in several of our progressive caucus and black caucus events because I wanted you there to drill down. <laughs> with your brilliance so people can understand we have to move legislatively in an intersectional way with our activists and with members of Congress. And so just thank you so much for that. And to uh, Kim Fox, let me just tell you, my sister, you, you are the epitome of what Ayanna uh, talks about in terms of those closest to the pain must be those closest to the power. And so I so uh, loved hearing you speak and I miss seeing you and you're doing a phenomenal job. So thank you so much for again, rising to the occasion. And to, of course, to Ayanna, my, my sister in the struggle who, I mean, being in Congress, there are about 22 African-American women. And, and let me tell you, I was the, in 1998, when I was elected, I was only the 20th ever since 1789 elected. So you can imagine the scene on the Hill. And so Ayanna comes there, bold, brilliant, beautiful, and just says, here I am. And so many of the issues that never got lifted up for many members to really deal with, uh, all of a sudden she was in their face and we're gonna do this. So Ayana, thank you so much because you give me the spirit and the encouragement to keep going. Yeah, you know, Kimberly, I remember that moment I, in that green room, I remember that moment. And I, you know what I said? Oh, you don't even know what I said in my, I can't even say it here. But that is such a, a moment that all black women experience in so many ways. And I remember when uh, Shirley Chisholm was, uh, and she's how I got involved in politics. She was my mentor. She encouraged me to register to vote and to, you know, be who I am today. And she said, look, at the Gary Indiana Convention, when she was running for president, she couldn't even get any 
of the African-American males or females, really. Women were trying to support her, but the men wouldn't. And so for me, that moment, I've had so many of, and I just say, you know what I say. So being, though, the only member of Congress to have to take on the whole government and the whole administration was really hard. But I'm going to tell you, that was a 60-word resolution that said the, the uh, president has authority to use war forever. And that was basically what it said. And we're still, it's been used in 19 countries, 41 times, even for domestic spying here in the United States. So I knew it was wrong then. And now others naturally are saying it's wrong. And we've tried to repeal it. Once again, I did in the Appropriations Committee yesterday, you know, it repealed the 2001, 2002, and got an amendment passed saying no war with Iran unless you come to Congress. So this is a marathon. But being the only one, it was hard. First of all, death threats, being called a traitor, committing an acts of treason, had to have security forever, couldn't move around. It, it was a terrible moment. But when I look back at it, I, I think, you know, of all the people, first of all, who were killed and the families and those who now have all of the medical issues as a result of 9-11 and all the trauma that that people are still suffering with. So for me, you know, I say my prayers. Uh, I <laughs> go to the scriptures. I, I, I'm paraphrasing in Ephesians, you know, when all hell is breaking loose around you, put on the full armor of God and you just stand. And that's what I did and kept going. And to the credit of my colleagues, they all came up and tried to get me to change my vote. And I was with Elijah Cummins and, and some sisters came up to me. And they said, you know, they're going to kill you. This is the end of your political career. And, and they were genuinely concerned. And my mother, my late mother said, she said, Barbara, you should have told them to call me because she said, I can tell them how stubborn you are after you've gone <laughs> mulled over it you know, looked at the pros and cons, you turn, and it takes a long time for me to make decisions like that, such grave decisions. She said, I could have told them that you really believed that and you were right. My dad called me, he was a Lieutenant Colonel, 25 years in the military. He's my first call, Kimberly. And he said, you know what? That was the right vote. You do not send our young men and women in harm's way and not know what the heck you're doing out of 60 words, not even having a target date, where they're going, what's the mission. He said that was the right vote. And so when you look, when I look back, I had about 60,000 phone calls and emails and letters. Those are now archived at Mills College in Oakland, California, if anyone ever wants to go see them. And I mean, they are some vicious uh, emails and letters. But on the other hand, Bishop Tutu, Coretta Scott King, you talk about people who got it and sent me letters and really supported me and told, uh, I remember Coretta Scott King, she told me personally, she said, you know, if Martin were here, he would tell you that that was the right thing to do and don't back down. That's what she told me. And so, you know, I had that kind of circle of, of love and friendship that I knew that it was going to be okay. And that's how black women are, and still we rise. I always, <laughs> that's what my mantra is, still we rise. And uh, now, you know, $5 trillion, thousands of our young men and women, and hundreds of thousands of people in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan, have died as a result of what this country has done. And so that was the right vote, whether it was one or 435. And if I had it to do over again and under those circumstances, you know, I would do it. Because you, you can't back off when you know constitutionally that's the correct place to be. Based on your conscience, that's the correct place to be. And then you let the chips fall where they may.
you know, as you were talking about your papers at Mills, I just had this fantasy of a project, a story, science fiction, something that goes back and tells history from the vantage point of what would happen if people really did trust black women. What would happen if black women were really believed? What would happen if their leadership was actually taken seriously by everybody? So you just listed some of the things. We wouldn't have had so many deaths. We wouldn't have spent an untold amount of money. We wouldn't have basically done an unjust act. So, you know, just thinking about what that history would look like. I have another one that I talk about a lot. What would have happened if we'd believed Anita Hill? Uh, if we had known the stories of Black women who actually were the plaintiffs in sexual harassment cases, if that story of our struggle as women had been centered to our understanding of anti-racism, it wouldn't have been so easy for so many of our own people to say sexual harassment isn't a Black woman's issue. We don't care about sexual harassment. That doesn't happen to us. Like, what are you talking about? Sexual harassment has happened to us since we arrived on these shores. So if we'd have believed her, we wouldn't have Clarence Thomas in the Supreme Court. We would still have the Voting Rights Act. We would still have uh, anti-discrimination law that does something. We would still have affirmative action. I mean, we could go down the list. We would not have had Bush versus Gore. How about that? That's right. That's right. And let me tell you, and had, had we not gone to the first look at Iraq, there were no weapons of mass destruction. It was based on lies, right? Look at all the resources we could have spent here on schools and on housing and on health care and on the racial justice issues. We would have had the resources to do that. And we don't because of these wars without end that this country is engaged in. Finally, let me just say a two things. One is talk about uh, loneliness of people who uh, came after me big time. You know, I endorsed Kamala Harris. And so I went to South Carolina and I campaigned a lot, lot for Kamala. And I was down there in South Carolina. This white man comes up with his child in tears big white guy. And he came up to me, he said, I just had to come see you and talk to you. And he's crying. And he said, you know, I was one of those who came after you after you voted against the war. And I wanted my son to be with me when I came up to you and apologized because I am so sorry. I am. And he was crying and wanted his son to meet me and said he was going to track me down because he knew I was in South Carolina. And then another woman sent a letter to me and $15, and she said, I was one of those who called you a traitor. And she said, and that was like 10 or 15 years ago. She said, and I'm sending you this $15 because I have two kids now and I really understand exactly what you said and I apologize. And I've gotten that kind of response, personal responses like that, Kimberly, over and over and over again. So with that, you know, you, you just stand. <laughs> You just stand. Yeah, yeah. What you raised for us, too, is the huge contradiction. I mean, I have to say, I still myself am shocked that, you know, a country that's so quickly to throw out the term treason seems to have taken a big yawn about what's happening now. I mean, I, I can't wrap my head around. So we have credible evidence that there was an effort to kill troops and our current White House occupant really didn't do anything about it. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Where are all the people who were accusing you of treason now? I mean, how does this make any sense to anybody? It's somewhat of a rhetorical question, but it really keeps me up at night. I do not get it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But you know, unfortunately, uh, the school system hasn't educated a lot of uh, 
you know, our children who grow up to be people who don't even know about the Constitution, civic engagement, democracy, because what I learned also was central to our democracy, what we know central to our democracy is the right to dissent. Well, there were so many people who said, you need to go along with this administration. You're a traitor because you wouldn't unify with the president. You're, you don't know what to do because you're not with lockstep with uh, everybody else. And it was like no understanding of what dissent and offering a different point of view and being uh, someone to stand up against what was evil. You know, it was like, oh, no, no, not, not, not in this country. You can't do that. So that is shocking to me that the level of understanding of what uh, democracy means in terms of being able to offer a different point of view. It's, it's scary. Dr. Christian, I just want to say because Barbara and Kim, you know, they both have received their share of death threats and they move with a strength of courage and conviction and, and they do that with such efficacy and with such grace that you would have no idea. But a lot of that threat has come from who they center. So when you talked about Anita Hill, that immediately made me think about Kim and her leadership with the uh, victims and the survivors in the R. Kelly situation. The point is that the pain of black women has been delegitimized since the inception of this country. From rape to sexual harassment to sexual abuse to our uh, black maternal mortality crisis, you know, all these things come back to the pain of black, to our push out crisis. They all come back to that. So I just wanted to acknowledge that because, you know, they make it look so easy. <laughs> Raised under pressure. And, and, and thank you for that transition because I did want to come back. I, have to, I still have to say state's attorney. I'm sorry. <laughs> state attorney Kim Fox. Talk to us about the particular nature of the opposition that you face because you know people can disagree with your decisions but the way that disagreement has been expressed tells us something about how they see you as a black woman exercising power oh absolutely i mean i i sign up as an elected official to be challenged on my policy positions whether it's advocates to the left or folks to the right that's what this is about you know i i have to take a position and people should have the right to be able to challenge it. But there's a different thing when you are marching on my office with the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, you are so outraged. As I watched what's happening in our streets over the last several weeks of people taken to the streets in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, that has stirred something. And I think about April 1st, 2019, when the Fraternal Order of Police um, and four different white nationalist groups showed up at my office because they didn't like the way that I disposed of the Jesse Smollett case. And this has got you riled up. This has got you where you need the proud boys to stand with you, that you are comfortable enough in their company that you would have them come out and march on my office. It was taking my photo and rubbing it against their genitalia, the misogyny, that was attached to it, the racism that was attached to it, the notion that this Black woman had made a decision that then necessitated you coming and saying that I don't belong here. And three days later, you know, the Fraternal Order of Police bringing together 40 white male police chiefs to do a vote of no confidence, not because of the way that I handled this case, 
but because I said I wasn't prosecuting marijuana offenses, but because I said I was advocating for bail reform, that we weren't going to prosecute people for driving on suspended licenses because they couldn't pay their parking tickets. It was, we're going to show up in this and not just disagree with you. We're going to try to run you out of town. The intimidation, the death threats, and it's not just me. I, I, I talked to a couple of my colleagues today, you know, Kim Gardner in St. Louis, who has charged the, the McCluskeys who went out on their lawn with a gun pointing it at protesters who came through. And this president has gone on television saying that it's wrong. Kim is getting death threats. Or Dinah Becton in Contra Costa, who charged uh, a couple who was painting over the Black Lives Matter sign that was painted on the streets. Um, they vandalized it. She charged them with misdemeanors. She's getting death threats. The notion that we can't make a decision that you don't agree with, that doesn't then require the destruction of my life or the humiliation of my being, I, I equated to like pitchforks trying to run me out of town. It's not about the decision, it's about the decision maker. I'm unapologetic about the fact that I come to this role as a black woman. I'm unapologetic that that experience with apparently the same mama that we've been all raised with, who says that we carry the weight of the world with us and I can't show up in any space and leave that ancestral history behind. And I'm not going to make that small. So the discomfort that comes from people who occupy these seats and have used the power to marginalize and oppress, that I say I'm not going to do that, that you then say you've got to go by any means necessary. And that means doing the most visceral, disgusting, base things that you can do to try to scare me out of these roles. And what I know for sure is that we don't get to occupy these seats, but for those others who had endured far greater with far less than I have to do that. But it doesn't come with a challenge to my policy. Mm -hmm. That would be too easy. That would be too simple for us to have a, a debate, a philosophical debate. We're gonna go baseline, visceral, racist, misogynist. We're gonna get in our suits and tell you how you don't belong here. My mere presence was such that they required 40 of them dressed like that to demand that I leave, but I'm still here. <laughs> you are still here. You know, and as you were describing the, the way in which your exercise of discretion was framed and imagined, it took me back to reconstruction. It took me back to what they said about black people exercising power to try to undermine it. And it was successful. You know, it, it wasn't just the redeemers who believed that, it was the liberals in the North who believed it together. And, and they basically came to a conclusion, you know what, we gotta push them out of power. So when you when you told me that the FOP was, was uh, protesting along with the Proud Boys, my first instinct was really with the police. And then my second was like, why should we be surprised about this? Partly because we don't really have the history at our fingertips to help us tell these stories. And on that, I, I wanna come to you, uh, Representative Lee, because some part of what you are trying to promote now is an effort to tell the history, to have uh, truth and reconciliation, which I would imagine includes both the history of uh, repression, the participation of uh, institutions of our government with that, and also the particular ways that black women um, were treated historically. I said the other day, there hasn't been a Juneteenth for us yet. 
I'm wondering, you know, how how you see this, um, what might come out of the commission as actually changing the the conversation in a way that allows for more of these transformational uh, policies to have a, a new foothold in our public conversation. You know, uh, Dr. Gail Christopher has uh, put together throughout the country probably 35 to 40 smaller truth and racial healing and transformation commissions. And so we, uh, for the last three, three and a half years, have been building to put forth a national commission. And what this commission does, first, let me just say, 40 countries plus have held truth and reconciliation or, or truth and transformation commissions after genocides, after crimes against humanity, after brutal atrocities during historical moments. And so what, uh, this country's never done it. And so this country has to come to grips and have a day of reckoning with regard to the 401 years ago in terms of the Middle Passage and slavery, what that means to descendants of enslaved people and what that has meant historically in terms of laws like um, the Black Codes, Jim Crow, segregation, when you're talking about lynching, those chains haven't all been broken. And there's never been a historical context to look at and understand systemic racism. And so what we want to do with this commission is have a truth-telling moment in this country where people come forward. And it's not about individual guilt. It's about a system of, of oppression in this country as it relates to African-Americans and what that system and those laws and those policies have done through the uh, generations. And it's at that moment, and I'm working with Brian Stevenson uh, on this in Alabama because his history in terms of the Middle Passage and mass incarceration is brilliant. And so we are working together to try to make sure that we have a national commission to, to recognize this history. And then that's when hopefully this country can come to grips with this history and how it has oppressed black men and women to today. And then what we do to disrupt and dismantle those systems of systemic racism and build a system based on justice and racial justice and, and freedom and, and truth. And so you have to, though, have this truth-telling moment. This country's never had that. And so that's one of the reasons, not all, but one of the reasons why we, we're stuck. And that's why you see police murders of black men and women. That's why you see the disproportionate impacts of COVID-19 on African-Americans and brown people. And you know, some of my constituents, white constituents in the Bay Area, called me when they saw these the images of black people dying of COVID. Uh, disproportionately, and they couldn't quite understand why. They couldn't understand this. I said, wait a minute. You don't understand the health disparities and the, the systemic racism that that is in the DNA of every single policy in this country? And so I had to explain to them 401 years ago what happened. And believe you me, they were like <laughs> shocked. And so we're way behind other countries. And, and I decided, and Dr. Christopher, and, and I have about 15, 20 activists and academics who were working with on this, uh, we decided we weren't going to call it uh, reconciliation because as it relates to African-Americans, there's nothing to reconcile in America. You have to have some, some balance to reconcile, right? And there's no balance there. So we're saying transformation because we want systemic racism to end at its core, deal with the underlying issues, and then put forth policies, programs, and systems based on justice. So we want transformative 
a transformative outcome that people can take to their local, state, and national elected officials and run with. Yes. And yes. And I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I just want to say that, you know, I'm just reminded by the hour that it's not, um, people will try to present these false binary choices about, you know, what, how do we need to move when it comes to racial justice? But it's not or, it's and, right? So we need what Barbara is doing. That is also, if you believe that Black lives matter, then you believe that Black healing matters. Then you believe Black justice matters for the lives that we've been robbed of. And so that's why, uh, in the words of um, Reverend Barber, that if the statues come down, but the statutes stay up, then we will not see change, right? So, you know, we're glad that those symbols and things are coming down. And, 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 and my sister friend, uh, Tiffany Cross, talked about how there is this culture shift occurring, but we need to see a power shift. And that's what Kim was getting at, is that what do you do when your existence is the resistance? <laughs> you know, our progressive, well-meaning friends who offer, you know, guilt and tears, they celebrate the hell out of diversity. They will wear a lapel pin. They will raise a flag. They will join you at a parade. They're all about celebrating diversity, but they are not about shared power. Well, we got to get to power shift, and then we need to see truly Black lives in our healing and our full emancipation and justice codified in law. because. The hurt that we've experienced, the harm and the hate was precise. It was legislated. And so we need to be just as precise in legislating our healing and our justice. And that's why I've introduced a bill to end qualified immunity. You know, these protections come out of the Supreme Court, strengthen the court case after court case. Police officers can operate with reckless impunity, callous disregard for human life, for black lives, without any retribution or consequences. Absolutely not. And, and uh, State Attorney uh, Kim Fox, you were going to say something, and, and while I turn it over to you, what are some of the other reforms, like changing the standard for justified use of lethal force? We can't get accountability uh, because we have these constraints. So there are the constraints, and they're real, and they're reforms that are on the table. So how would they work? But also, is it true that there's nothing that can be done? I mean, you have prosecuted Police officers, is it just a failure to really take on the, 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 the police that we're looking at? It's a both and. I mean, I think the fact of the matter is that the laws as they are on the books right now make it very difficult to hold police officers accountable. It's not only the laws about, you know, the ability to use use of force and what is considered a threat. And again, when we talk about threats, you know, it is dripping in racism, how we define you know, blackness as being a threat in and of itself. I talk about the fact, you know, the case on making national news right now, the woman in the Chipotle parking lot who pulls a gun on a mother and a 15-year-old, and she's saying, I was afraid, I was afraid of them. Is that a rational fear? Some people would say that is absolutely a rational fear. There's been study after study done about basically the villainization of black children, um, how we are not seen particularly um, as black girls, as Ayana talked about earlier, as being capable of being victimized or being harmed. When we talked about what was happening with R. Kelly, I can't tell you the number of people who came at me and told me why this 14-year-old was so sexualized and how fair was it that we were holding the grown man accountable for engaging with a fast little girl. And and are those, are those uh, white people who are saying that? 
No, no. Not only were they not white people, these are people in my own family. And I'm a survivor. And why that case, just to steer for a moment, was so important, and I'm glad my sister brought it up. It was so important to me because in the conversations that we were having around R. Kelly, the number of Grammy-winning millionaire artists that we would be prosecuting would be small. But the pastor, the deacon, the coach, the person in our neighborhood who carries that much power because of the network that we see, the message that we were sending to young girls about their bodies, their behavior, the blaming of them was far more impactful. You can talk about this one artist, but it is far more pervasive in those structures of power in our very community that I think was so jarring to others. And so it is this not only not being victims, but also seeing us as threatening. And so we do have that aspect. And then we have this aspect around use of force. We have this aspect around union contracts that allow for loopholes that will allow for someone to make a statement right after an incident happens and then get a chance to look at the video and reconcile their statement to what they've seen on the video. It makes it almost impossible to get convictions in these officer-involved shooting cases. It doesn't mean you don't try, but we really have to go to the laws as they stand on the books and say that they are stacked against the ability for prosecutors to make their case. And as you said, we've charged two police officers within the first two months of my having been in office and was successful in getting a second-degree murder charge on one, and another where you know someone is running away and is shot in the back was found not guilty. And there was room in the law to be able to argue and a judge to have found um, that that person still posed a threat. And so we have to be very intentional about taking that away. One of the things that's important to me, you know, people say, particularly in Chicago, as we deal with violent crime all the time, you know, these tougher sentences will deter people from engaging in violent crime. We don't see that. Um, I'm just going to tell you, we aren't seeing that in communities where the root cause of violence is not being addressed. And so that's why we will see perpetual cycles of crime, because if you don't do anything about root causes, you shouldn't expect different outcomes. However, as it relates to policing, the converse of that is if you are allowed to kill with impunity, if you know that there are no consequences, then you can sit with your hand in your pocket and your knee on a man's neck, looking into a camera with the full faith and confidence that nothing's going to happen to you. But if we are able to hold accountable, make example, we've seen it, we've seen the pushback, we've seen the anger that the unions are having, when you start holding people accountable, we then start saying, well, we're going to pull back. We're not going to do our jobs. If you can't do your job without killing someone or without feeling like you have the right to do so, then you don't need to do that job. But we do need the mechanisms in place to be able to hold you accountable because I do believe that that does have a deterrent effect. It will make you think twice about how you engage in that stop how you de-escalate, what are the options on the table. Without that deterrent mechanism, without the protections of that immunity that my sister spoke of, there is no incentive to do otherwise. 
And while, while you're talking, I uh, just wanted to mention as well that you were one of the first, I think the first prosecutor who has opened up basically a hotline, a way that people can actually call in and, and make a complaint. When I looked at how you have to go about making a complaint, I think a lot of people don't realize you have to have an affidavit. You have to say your address and who you are. If you're afraid of the police, the last thing you're going to do is come and make a, a complaint where you basically have to uh, make yourself vulnerable to them. So it's been absolutely uh, amazing to see what kind of reforms are possible for people who really are serious about trying to hold police accountable. And the fact that it's not done more places tells you a whole lot about how people are pretty happy with the situation and not really looking for opportunities to really change. Oh, that's right. And the pushback that we've even seen with that of let's make it accessible. Give me the videos. And the frustration for me was I'd see a case on television and there'd be some cell phone video of an incident that looked absolutely horrifying and you're waiting to get it. You're waiting for the institutions for whom someone is logging a complaint to give the prosecutor said information to investigate. It just is this perpetual cycle of the system protecting itself. And so when you say, let's make it more accessible, let's make the public able to come directly to the prosecutor for whom I serve them, um, to be able to say, here's what I got. Can you look at it without the filter of those who I am alleging has caused the harm? This should be a no-brainer. But anytime that you are disrupting that, and the last thing I want to say, because it, it just popped in my head, we talked about reconciliation. One of the things that was really fascinating to me as I ran for office again and openly talking about the hostility that the FOP has shown for me, that the media was very much, you know, what is the issue with you and the police? How are you going to feel going against the police? I have to work with police every day. I need them to be legitimate. I need them to be credible. They're on every case that I have. But the assumption that I, as a Black woman, who had people march on my office with white nationalist groups who were calling for my death and the death of my children, that I would have to explain to the media why I would call that out, why I would not just take that and not expose the light on the institutions that are there for our protection. When something like that happens to me by the FOP, who do I call when they dox my house? and you talk about feeling unsafe, and then being questioned as to why I would float those issues. Isn't it wrong that the relationship is broken? I didn't break the relationship. My mere existence in the relationship caused the relationship to be fragile. And if we don't call that out, if we just allow that to go, it will then discourage the next person from fully showing up as themselves. And that's how we get people where everybody in these roles will get along because it is far easier to not have people threaten your life or your children's life. It is far easier to go along with the status quo if the disruption that, that we've seen, that I've seen personally, can be eliminated for the safety of my family. But that's why we have to call it out. That's why we have to be unapologetic in it. That's why we have to center this because these institutions have been allowed to, to work in this way based on our silence. This is what courageous leadership looks like. This is what has to be protected, right? 
This has gone so quickly, I can't believe it. Um, we're, we're basically at our last few questions because we want to get a sense of um, what our marching orders are. And I also want to just get a sense of what the sisterhood is, is like. Um, I wanted to come back to, to you, uh, Representative Presley, because I did say I wanted to say something about data and we are in the middle of this COVID crisis. So I think it is important to just take a moment and uh, acknowledge a couple of things. You know, was a sense that yes, this is happening. No one was talking about the racial disparity. Black and brown people started dying. Um, then slowly, hardly as a consequence of your demanding and, and, and others demanding we need to have this data, the data starts coming out, but then without an understanding, of course, of the, the histories and the structures that produced these disparate outcomes, some people were willing to say that the disparity rests in the body, in the culture, in, in the people. And now we have, at least if I'm to read correctly, the White House taking over uh, information and, and data from the CDC. What is it that people need to understand about what these battles over data are really about? As I said, if you believe that Black Lives Matter, then Black data matters. And you have the data to show that during a prior virus, that Black folks represented the highest percentage of hospitalizations and fatalities. But also we know that we're living with the comorbidity of structural racism. And I'll just share something with you. Um, I was having a conversation with some activists from Detroit, and I was talking about the comorbidities of structural racism, and within that, talking about food deserts, right? And uh, high asthma rates, and disproportionate exposure and impact of environmental injustices, and how all that works together. And an elder in the community said to me, please do not refer to my community as a food desert because I know how to grow food. We know how to grow food. What we live in is a food apartheid system, right? And so that really does underscore again how structural this is. So we knew anecdotally that our communities would be hit hardest because of unequal access to healthcare, because of the comorbidities of structural racism. But early on, we began banging the drum, demanding that the data, racial data be collected. We were already collecting age and gender when it comes to the coronavirus, but we were not collecting racial data. So we began early on advocating for that data to be collected and disaggregated and publicly reported in real time so that we can ensure that there would be an equitable public health response when it comes to access to testing and treatment, but moreover, that the resources would follow the most vulnerable communities and the highest infection rates, not population size. So data is about not just data mining to mine data, it's about saving lives, it's about determining how resources are coordinated, marshaled, and directed. And so that is why myself and Senator Warren introduced and, and Representative Lee was also uh, so critical in this fight, the Equitable Data Collection Act which was a congressional mandate for the collection of that data. But Representative Lee and I have had to stay on him and Representative uh, Robin Kelly as well because the original report they provided us was nothing but hyperlinks with no real information. So, you know, even though we were successful in having this Equitable Data Collection Act integrated into our relief package and issuing that congressional mandate, we then have to stay on them around the enforcement of that mandate. We have an administration because of their science denials, their sluggish response, and their criminal negligence, criminal negligence, that we began a pandemic behind, which is the worst position you want to be in. So the data is about us catching up. 
and it's about saving lives. And Representative Lee, thank you for staying. I want to give you the floor for uh, telling us what's coming. Because <laughs> I don't know. I look at November. I think, okay, let's let's say it works out. I'm not looking at a person who gives up power easily. What should we be prepared for? Give us our marching orders. <laughs> well, first, uh, Ayana, let me just... Uh, say to you how important what you said was in your leadership on the data collection because Redfield at CDC actually came to the Appropriations Committee and we jammed him big time and he apologized for not having the data. And what uh, Congresswoman Presley said was absolutely correct. They gave us patched together links to outdated data from states that had nothing, and it, it was a shame and disgrace. And this is a mandate, this is a law, this is in the law. And so uh, we have a lot of work to do now, but also come November. Uh, and I think the most important thing we need to do right now, Kimberly, is vote. We have got to get everybody to the polls. We have got to really vote as if it is a matter of life and death, because it is. And also the census is coming up, and we have got to participate in the census. Oftentimes, uh, our folks naturally, and I know uh, Congresswoman Presley is, you know, we, we're a little suspect of the system too, you know, because we don't, we know, I, I remember COINTELPRO and, and all of the stuff we have to deal with as African Americans, right? So we're a little timid about that, and that's why we have to, you know, make sure all the protections are there, and we've done that. And so we are encouraging and urging African-Americans, Black people to participate in the census because it does not only mean political lines are drawn so that you will have representation. It means resources for housing, for education, you know, for health care, for uh, environmental cleanup projects. It, it's money. It's millions and millions and millions of dollars. So that's next, voting and uh, the census. But after November, let me tell you, we're going to do our work and we're going to win in November. And so we just have to be prepared for whatever comes because we're going to have such a victorious win if we do our work until we're going to push back all, all of those who, uh, all the white supremacists, we may as well call it like it is, who, who want to refight the civil war. And, and that's what this is about. You know, uh, <laughs> the union won, the Confederacy lost. And so we're going to win in November, but I'm just encouraging everybody and taking this opportunity to please, please vote. Know that your vote counts. We, I mean, in the last election, Donald Trump was elected because of only a couple of votes per precinct in uh, three states. Uh, and, and we actually won the popular vote. So every vote counts. So please do that. That's next. And it's really our moment. Racial justice, racial equity. I even shy away from saying diversity now because this is about black racial equity. And I know Congresswoman Presley and her committees and myself on the Appropriations Committee, we look at every single policy and funding priority within the context of black racial justice. And if it, if it furthers systemic racism, we try to dismantle it and vote against it. If it helps move us forward towards some justice we support. And that's kind of how we do our work on Capitol Hill. And so what's next? We're going to win if everyone comes together in an intersectional way, Kimberly, if we <laughs> do it like you say, do it. 
we will win. <laughs> Thank you so much. And last word to uh, State Attorney Fox, you're up for election, re-election. And I was so moved by when we talked yesterday about what propels you forward, what, what inspires you. So close us out with what it is that shapes how you occupy that position yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for this. It's so good to see um, and be a part of this panel with my two sheroes who I just have so much respect for. I'm going to end the way um, Ayana started. You know, everything that I do is in recognition of my mother. And, you know, my mother was 17 when she had my brother, 18 when she had me. She dropped out of high school. I was born in April. She was due to graduate in June because she'd had this second baby in 13 months. And this is a woman who um, suffered from bipolar disorder, but didn't know it. She was just known as male. That's just how she acted. She didn't get a diagnosis two years later because they didn't have access to mental health care in the projects. This is a woman who smokes marijuana on a daily basis because that's what quieted her nerves. That's what evened her out. You know, this is a woman who was the queen of scofflaws, who didn't pay parking tickets because it truly was a decision of whether we were gonna eat or whether she was gonna pay these tickets. And so what I knew about her was that she was incredibly brilliant, incredibly thoughtful, would do whatever she could to make a way for my brother and I. Everything about my mother that was the strength and determination, I now sit in a position where I can prosecute other people's mothers or sisters. And how do I sit in this seat with those experiences that have guided me, that I am no different than the people who have been caught up in our systems. I'm just very fortunate. And centering her in everything that I do. It is why when I, I fought for marijuana legalization in Illinois and a provision, the only provision that has been built into the law that we will vacate and expunge the records going as far back as we could so people won't be locked out of our systems for the collateral consequences of convictions why I stopped prosecuting people for driving on suspended licenses because they couldn't pay their tickets, why I fight very hard for survivors of sexual abuse and assault, because I see my mother's story and the limitations that were placed on her life, not because she wasn't as deserving or as brilliant or as talented, but because she was a Black poor woman growing up in the city who was dismissed. And if she could have imagined for a half a second that her baby girl from 624 West Division would be the first black woman to hold this seat, that will hold the power to make determinations about people's futures and outcomes. It's why they're coming with their placards and their marches and protests because it is time for the giant that are those who have been impacted by a criminal justice system, a failed war on drugs, that they didn't care about the casualties, to have the people who have survived that to come and say, we must do better. And so that's, that's what centers me is this woman who gave everything for me, who didn't get to see me get to this place, that I owe it to her, to my grandmother who prayed for her daughter to make it so that no other mother is treated in the way that my mother was. How much talent have we lost? How many, how many doctors, lawyers, congresswomen have we left behind in our neighborhoods because we've allowed the casual racism to exist? And so that's what, that's what guides me. That's what allows me to take the knocks and the blows and to text Diana and be like, girl, they coming. And she said, hold your head up because there's a role that we have to play for the mothers that got us here. 
and my daughters, I have four daughters that I'm raising to make it easier for them and their grandchildren uh, by saying that I didn't take this moment and simply sit on the sidelines. Y'all, we've been to church, synagogue, mosque, this has just been so uplifting. State's Attorney Kim Fox, Representative Ayanna Presley, Representative Barbara Lee, woo, for helping us think through this moment and thinking through it as Black women. I know I'm fired up. I, I know you must be too. And if you're in Chicago, when you vote for the highest office in the land, vote at a local level to make criminal justice a system that works for all of us. Thank you all. Please stay safe and stay strong as we continue to organize and resist in this fight for intersectional justice. Our friends at The New Republic have recently introduced The Politics of Everything, a podcast exploring the intersection of culture, politics, and media. The show's hosts are TNR literary editor, Laura Marsh, and staff writer, Alex Perrine. On recent episodes, they've examined how privatization and pharmaceutical consolidation in the U.S. have contributed to the COVID-19 pandemic, the history of polarization and its role in politics today, and how protests shape policy. You can find The Politics of Everything wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. Additional support was provided by the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, following us on social media, or signing up for our Patreon page. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.